Invisibility as a source of power is not new. H.G. Wells and Ralph Ellison both wrote novels in which the invisible man reflected disquieting social forces. In Wells's 1897 sci-fi narrative, The Invisible Man, Griffin, a student of physics and self-described experimental investigator, whose research has gone awry, injects himself with a potion that has bleached a cat white and driven it mad. Still, to become invisible, Griffin explains, would be to transcend magic. And I beheld, unclouded by doubt, a magnificent vision of all that invisibility might mean to a man. The mystery, the power, the freedom. Drawbacks, I saw none. With such high hopes, Griffin makes himself invisible for personal curiosity and convenience, and shortly thereafter finds him morally corrupt. He robs his own father. He finds then that he is unable to reverse the process. The movie adaptation includes a series of indelible images, the bandage wrapped around his head being slowly unwound to reveal empty space, a white shirt floating around the room, a bicycle riding itself away, a cigarette dangling in midair. Only upon death does Griffin again become visible, suggesting that scientific progress can deprive us of our own identity and humanity. In 1952, Ellison's unnamed protagonist in Invisible Man reflects on the impossibility of the black man to find a place for himself in American society. His invisibility is an amorphous vessel for the assumptions, beliefs, and expectations of white Americans around him. When they approach me, he says at the outset, they see only my surroundings themselves or figments of their imagination. Indeed, everything and anything except me. Though unseen, the protagonist nonetheless must take on false identities, assume temporary aliases, and wear absurd disguises. But another member in the Confederacy of Invisibles is Harvey, a six-foot-three anthropomorphic rabbit, the eponymous star of a 1944 play by Mary Chase. She was motivated to write her play by seeing a neighbor whose only son had died in the war, going to work day after day with brute resignation. Drawn from Celtic mythology, the invisible rabbit is a philosopher, imaginary friend, advisor, and ambassador from the spirit world whose message about valuing kindness over intelligence resonated with a war-weary nation. Its formidable, albeit comedic, presence prompts consideration of mental illness, alcoholism, societal norms, and the power of the human imagination. The world we inhabit today seems to be increasingly indiscernible, I find it hopeful that there are as many ways to conceal as to reveal. Just as the digital age offers us nearly infinite new forms of transparency, so too does it advance obscurity. Cloaking devices, augmented reality programming, and photoreflective textiles that use infrared light to distor distort what is visible to the human eye.
But even beyond such technologies, the chasm between seeing and knowing is ever-widening in the 21st century. We recognize that the universe includes abstract and imperceptible dark matter and dark energy, which is expanding it. Dark matter is thought to take up about 27% of the known universe, dark energy 68%, leaving the visible world with a mere 5%. In the accidental universe, physicist Alan Lightman catalogs the invisible realms. The expanding universe, the spin of the earth, microwaves and radio waves, the dilation of time, and the wavy nature of subatomic particles. But he goes on to suggest that this knowledge, not to mention the technology that has emerged from it, has created a working familiarity with the invisible. In other words, we know it when we don't see it. But this familiarity is derived from other enterprises as well. Because, of course, we all traffic in the unseen, all the time, every day. The extravaganzas of surveillance and social media may lead us to believe otherwise. But what we believe in and the ideas to which we commit ourselves are unseen, as are our, all our emotional ties and spiritual convictions. Perhaps, too, our interest in invisibility stems from how we hide from ourselves, how our, how our desires, fears, hopes, and motives are concealed so deeply beneath our conscious lives and actions. Just as we have come to understand that the light visible to us is only one small section of the electromagnetic spectrum, we know that immense segments of human knowledge and experience remain unseen. The world around us is an encyclopedia of the discreet. As David Mitchell writes in Cloud Atlas, power, time, gravity, love, the forces that really kick ass are all invisible. The ubiquity of the word invisible is growing. In his 2014 book, Invisibles, Celebrating the unsung heroes of the workplace, David Zweig itemizes the ways in which people can do good and acquire profound personal satisfaction without the slightest need for personal promotion. Professional success can be a matter of doing excellent work rather than seeking attention for themselves. A quaint notion today, but one that probably went without saying a generation or two ago. Zweig found that the three common traits of people in such professions, such as a fact checker, fragrance designer, structural engineer, and a prop master on a TV series, were ambivalence toward recognition, meticulousness, and a savoring of responsibility. I see those traits in the people I know who choose anonymity. A friend who constructs special effects in film and prefers not to have his name listed in the credits. A woodworker who chooses not to sign his precisely crafted pieces. 
and a graphic designer who chose her profession exactly for its discretion. I didn't know what graphic designers looked like, she told me. No one cared what I looked like. I wanted to be anonymous. It was about the work. As Vig writes, it's the invisible's pure satisfaction from the work itself, their lack of need for recognition, that is a powerfully grounded trait that we can all aspire to. The invisibles are not an exclusive group, they are simply at the far end of a spectrum we all live within. We are all invisible to varying degrees, in different ways, and in different contexts. In architecture and design, invisibility can likewise be an ordinary virtue. The German industrial designer Dieter Rams suggested that great design does not call attention to itself. Instead, it permits the user to hold the pen, sit in the chair, and walk with ease into the building, oblivious to the idea of design at all. A coffee pot, razor, and keyboard intuitively explain their own use through form. A generation later, Canadian designer Bruce Mao reiterated that good design is invisible until it fails. In the age of information, design invisibility has ever greater value and meaning. A new generation of architects is coming to understand that great architecture is a matter not simply of form and construction, but of environment, climate, energy, and ecology, and that light, air, energy, and heat are as essential as conventional material building supplies. In fall 2016, the unseen even earned its own bit of celebrity when the Museum of Modern Art in New York City hosted an audio exhibition, Dust Gathering, that asked viewers to consider not the storied masterpieces of its collection, but the detritus that collects on ledges, windowsills, doorways, blinds, frames, and the art itself. Allergists, as well as art handlers and other museum staff, not ordinary heard from, were consulted about how dust brought to the museum by visitors from around the world, in fact, arrives from the earth and the greater cosmos. The museum's air filtration system was examined, as was the most difficult to clean art. Lest we take an amused or ironic view of such curatorial efforts, we are reminded of the theological component of this inconspicuous material from which we come and to which we shall be returned. But poetry may be the medium best suited to invisibility. It was Wallace Stevens, after all, who pointed out that a poet is the priest of the invisible. In her poem, The Art of Disappearing, Naomi Shihab Nye suggests traveling with a sense of lightness. When recognized in the grocery store, she advocates that one nod briefly and become a cabbage. And she advises, walk around feeling like a leaf, 
know you could tumble at any second. Then decide what to do with your time. The invisible leaf is not a transgression. It is not robbing anyone, nor is it trying to get away with anything. It simply exists unnoticed. Nye's forest has many trees, many leaves. I can tell you what invisibility is not. It is not loneliness, solitude, secrecy, or silence. The nature of the subject makes it difficult to be comprehensive, but my hope is to compile a field guide to invisibility. One to reacquaint us with the possibilities of the unseen world, to reimagine and re-engineer our place in it with greater engagement and creative participation. And to find those ways in which remaining out of view can be a resourceful exercise. Inconspicuousness begins as a self-protection, but soon extends to self-reliance and a deeper appreciation of who we are and where we belong in things. Invisibility is a protean idea. It can be a diminution of scale or significance. It can be a pejorative, referring to subterfuge, dishonesty, psychic emptiness, a vanishing act, and extinction. It can come with an arbitrary and cruel loss, as when the emerging identity and skills of a young child seem to vanish with autism, or when the distinctive character of an elderly person seems to disappear with the onset of Alzheimer's. But if you suffer from social anxiety disorder, you may want nothing more than to vanish. It can be a metaphor, a visual trick, a psychological state, a matter of physics, or a question of neuroscience. It can be corporeal or ethereal. It can be chosen or conferred. It can be power or powerlessness. It can be desired or despised. It can be ambiguous and full of intrigue, or straightforward and even banal. Invisibility is often believed to be about transgression. The ability to do wrong, to get away with something, to cheat, lie, or steal. But it can be the opposite as well. One can disappear in solitude or in collective effervescence, a phrase that describes the phenomenon when members of a community collaborate intuitively in thought and action. Invisibility can be ephemeral or enduring. It may require following the advice of Pliny the Elder in the first century AD to find a stone of green jasper with flecks of red along with a flowering heliotrope and then to sing a series of songs. In the Index of Invisibility compiled by folklore scholar Stith Thompson, its accessories may include a flower, a candle, a stone, a mask, a seed, bird nest, herb, shirt, sword, mirror, animal's heart. 
Invisibility can be the real walking stick, insect positioning itself as a twig on the wisteria vine on my porch, and as weirdly mysterious as Gully Gawk, an unseen Icelandic troll who steals foam from buckets of cow milk. Part 1, Section 1, Novelty. The first and the simplest emotion which we discover in the human mind is curiosity. By curiosity, I mean whatever desire we have for or whatever pleasure we take in novelty. We see children perpetually running from place to place to hunt out something new. The catch with great eagerness and with very little choice at whatever comes before them. Their attention is engaged by everything, because everything has, in that stage of life, the charm of novelty to recommend it. But as those things which engage us merely by their novelty cannot attach us for any length of time, curiosity is the most superficial of all the affections. It changes its object perpetually. It has an appetite which is very sharp, but very easily satisfied. And it always has an appearance of giddiness, restlessness, and anxiety. Curiosity, from its nature, is a very active principle. It quickly runs over the greatest part of its objects, and soon exhausts the variety which is commonly to be met with in nature. The same things make frequent returns, and they return with less and less of any agreeable effect. In short, the occurrences of life by the time we come to know it a little, would be incapable of affecting the mind with which, with any other sensations than those of loathing and weariness, if many things were not adapted to affect the mind by means of other powers beside novelty in them, and of other passions beside curiosity in ourselves. These powers and passions shall be considered in their place. But whatever these powers are, or upon what principle soever they affect the mind, it is absolutely necessary that they should not be exerted in those things which a daily vulgar use has brought into a stale, unaffecting familiarity. Some degree of novelty must be one of the materials in every instrument which works upon the mind, and curiosity blends itself more or less with all our passions. Section 2. Pain and Pleasure It seems then necessary toward moving the passions of people advanced in life to any considerable degree that the objects designed for that purpose, besides being in some measure new, should be capable of exciting pain or pleasure from other causes. Pain and pleasure are simple ideas, incapable of definition. People are not liable to be mistaken in their feelings, but they are very frequently wrong in the names they give them and in their reasonings about them. Many are of opinion that pain arises necessarily from the removal of some pleasure, as they think pleasure does from the ceasing or diminution of some pain. For my part, I am rather inclined to imagine that pain and pleasure in their most simple and natural manner of 
affecting are each of a positive nature and by no means necessarily dependent on each other for their existence. The human mind is often, and I think for the most part, in a state neither of pain nor pleasure, which I call a state of indifference. When I am carried from this state into a state of actual pleasure, it does not appear necessary that I should pass through the medium of any sort of pain. If, in such a state of indifference or ease or tranquility, or call it what you please, you were to be suddenly entertained with a concert of music, or suppose some object of a fine shape and bright, lively colors to be represented before you, or imagine your smell is gratified with the fragrance of rose. Or if, without any previous thirst, you were to drink some kind of pleasant kind of wine, or to taste of some sweet meat without being hungry. In all the several senses of hearing, smelling, and tasting, you undoubtedly find a pleasure. Yet, if I inquire into the state of your mind previous to these gratifications, you will hardly tell me that they have found you in any kind of pain, or having satisfied these several senses with their several pleasures. Will you say that any pain has succeeded, through, though the pleasure is absolutely over? Suppose, on the other hand, a man in the same state of indifference to receive a violent blow, or to drink of some bitter potion, or to have his ears wounded with some harsh and grating sound. Here is no removal of pleasure, and yet here is felt, in every sense which is affected, a pain very distinguishable. It may be said, perhaps, that the pain in these cases had its rise from the removal of the pleasure which the man enjoyed before, though that pleasure was of so low a degree as to be perceived only by the removal. But this seems to me a subtlety that is not discoverable in nature. For if, previous to the pain, I do not feel any actual pleasure, I have no reason to judge that any such thing exists, since pleasure is only pleasure as it is felt. The same may be said of pain and with equal reason. I can never persuade myself that pleasure and pain are mere relations, which can only exist as they are contrasted. But I think I can discern clearly that there are positive pains and pleasures, which do not at all depend upon each other. Nothing is more certain to my own feelings than this. There is nothing which I can distinguish in my mind with more clearness than the three states of indifference, of pleasure and of pain. Every one of these I can perceive without any sort of idea of its relation to anything else. Caius is afflicted with a fit of the colic. This man is actually in pain. Stretch Caius upon the rack he will feel a much greater pain. But does the pain of the rack arise from the removal of any pleasure? Or is the fit of a colic 
a pleasure or a pain, just as we are pleased to consider it. Section 3. The difference between the removal of pain and positive pleasure. We shall carry this proposition yet a step farther. We shall venture to propose that pain and pleasure are not only necessarily dependent for their existence on their mutual diminution or removal, but that in reality the diminution of or ceasing of pleasure does not operate like positive pain, and that the removal or diminution of pain in its effect has very little resemblance to positive pleasure. The former of these propositions will, I believe, be much more readily allowed than the latter, because it is very evident that pleasure, when it has run its career, sets its down very nearly where it found us. Pleasure of every kind quickly satisfies, and when it is over, we relapse into indifference, or rather, we fall into a soft tranquility, which is tinged with the agreeable color of the former sensation. I own it is not, at first view, so apparent that the removal of a great pain does not resemble positive pleasure. But let us recollect in what state we have found our minds upon escaping some imminent danger or on being released from the severity of some cruel pain. We have on such occasions found, if I am not much mistaken, the temper of our minds in a tenor very remote from that which attends the presence of positive pleasure. We have found them in a state of much sobriety, impressed with a sense of awe, in a sort of tranquility shadowed with horror. The fashion of the countenance and the gesture of the body on such occasions are so correspondent to this state of mind that any person, a stranger to the cause of the appearance, would rather judge us under some consternation than in the enjoyment of anything like positive pleasure. As when a wretch who, conscious of his crime, pursued for murder from his native clime, just gains some frontier, breathless, pale, amazed, all wonder, all gaze. Homer, Iliad. The striking appearance of the man whom Homer supposes to have just escaped an imminent danger, the sort of mixed passion of terror and surprise with which he affects the spectators, paints very strongly the manner in which we find ourselves affected upon occasions any way similar, for when we have suffered from any violent emotion, the mind naturally continues in something like the same condition, after the cause which first produced it has ceased to operate. The tossing of the sea remains after the storm, and when this remain of horror has entirely subsided, all the passion which the accident raised subsides along with it, and the mind returns to its usual state of indifference. In short, 
pleasure, I mean anything either in the inward sensation or in the outward appearance, like pleasure from a positive cause, has never, I imagine, its origin from the removal of pain or danger. The Gaiji's effect, a term for anonymous online bullying and aggression, is taken from Plato's myth of Gaiji's, the story of a shepherd who discovers a ring that confers invisibility. Once placed on his finger, the ring enables him to enter the kingdom, seduce the queen, kill the king, and ultimately secure the empire for himself. And it serves as an example of how going unseen allows, indeed, encourages an otherwise ordinary and honorable person to commit transgressions and behave unjustly. It suggests that opportunistic invisibility emboldens amoral behavior, and indeed, the entire digital world is full of examples in which dishonesty and indiscretion are enabled by invisibility. The subtitle of Philip Ball's comprehensive encyclopedia, Invisible, the Dangerous Allure of the Unseen, refers to the perils of going unseen. In the opening paragraph, he writes, if you could be invisible, what would you do? The chances are that it will have something to do with power, wealth, or sex, perhaps all three given the opportunity. Paul suggests that rather than feel guilty, we see simply need to recognize that human nature being what it is, our expeditions into invisibility naturally invite such episodes of degeneracy. Likewise, in a segment titled Invisible Man vs. Hawkman on Ira Glass's weekly radio show, This American Life, Writer and humorist John Hodgman asks the age-old question, would you rather be able to fly or be invisible? He finds that those who choose invisibility imagine sneaking into movie theaters and onto planes. Women steal cashmere sweaters while men watch women taking showers. Here's one thing that pretty much no one ever says, I would use my power to fight crime No one seems to care about crime, says Hodgman, concluding that invisibility in the adult world is largely viewed as a means for wrongdoing. But it is not just about transgression. Paranoia also figures in contemporary ideas about invisibility. In 1977, an Austrian artist who goes by the name Valley Export made the film Invisible Adversaries, who is about a woman who believes that those around her have become inhabited by unseen space aliens. In her 2013 film, How Not to Be Seen, a fucking didactic educational dot move file, the Berlin-based artist and filmmaker Hido Sterl offers five lessons in going unseen. Satirizing the tone of an instructional video, the voiceover assures us that love, war, and capital are all invisible. In lesson one, how to make something invisible for a camera, one can hide, be removed, go off screen, or disappear. In lesson two, how to be invisible in plain sight, 
One can feign absence, hide in plain sight, or be shrunken or erased. Lesson four offers a grab bag of invisible personas. A resident of a gated community or a military zone. Anyone in an airport, factory, or museum. Someone wearing an invisible cloak or surfing the dark web. A woman over 50. A dead pixel. Or someone who has been disappeared by a totalitarian regime. Used as the backdrop for much of the video are old, dilapidated calibration targets. The geometric patterns drawn on the California desert floor as training targets for unmanned aircraft, which is to say an early practice exercise for drones. The message is that in an age of perpetual surveillance, invisibility resonates with alienation, and though it may be of occasional service, it generally implies estrangement and disaffection. But it is time to question this orthodoxy. Transgression, paranoia, and social disparagement are the most obvious and least interesting things about invisibility. Jardin secret is a French term that refers not to a horticultural plot, but to a kind of psychic cloister. Anything from a small personal ritual to a state of mind, some private thing, idea, or activity that people keep to and for themselves. It might be a particular view through a window, a haven or retreat, an early morning walk, a spot on the river near a bridge, a table in the cafe, a piece of music, or a private collection of feathers, stones, books, or fans. The idea of privacy is intrinsic to the Jardin secret. Possession, ownership, and intimacy may all come into it, and it may be erotic, but not necessarily. Implicit in the Jardin secret is that small personal histories need not always be shared, that human experience and imagination are sometimes a matter of private intentions, actions, or rewards, and that social exchange and shared experience may also depend on having this deep well of privacy. Escaping notice is not simply about color, but about improvisation that nods to time and season. Chromatic responses to landscape can happen in an instant or in days, weeks, months. And Cott's menagerie of imposters ranges from the brilliant African insects that take on the dark color of the fields in which they live after the grass has been blackened by fires, to spiders in Maine that assume the deep yellow of goldenrod in late summer. Shading and countershading, the interplay of light and its absence help to obliterate form. Dimension is diminished, solidity is reduced, and objects can appear flattened, like a fish that presents itself as an aquatic weed, or a fawn in the woods whose dappled spots evoke sunlight falling on foliage. In animals, stripes, spots, or other dramatic surface designs of feathers, fur, or scales, 
can further bewilder the eye of the observer. The white and black rings of fluff on newly hatched chicks of the ringed plover break up the shape of the newborns, hiding them from predators. Cott distinguishes between concealment and what he calls aggressive resemblance, which describes, for example, the way snakes impersonate lianos, or moths present like the bark of a tree or the excrement of birds. A Brazilian butterfly with twisted filaments can evoke a torn and shriveled leaf, and mollusks have protrusions, spots, and bands of color that replicate the distortions of the marine algae of their habitats. Not simply a matter of coloration, pattern, and precise timing, invisibility seems woven into the very structure of being and behavior. John Keats, The Chameleon Poet, Letter to Richard Woodhouse. My dear Woodhouse, your letter gave me a great satisfaction, more on account of its friendliness than any relish of that matter in it, which is accounted so acceptable in the genus irritabile. The best answer I can give you is in a clerk-like manner to make some observations on two principal points, which seem to point like indices into the mists of the whole pro and con about genius and views and achievements and ambition and etc. First, as to the poetical character itself, I mean that sort of which, if I am anything, I am a member, that sort distinguished from the Wordsworthian or egotistical sublime, which is a thing per se and stands alone. It is not itself, it has no self. It is everything and nothing. It has no character, it enjoys light and shade. It lives in gusto, be it foul or fair, high or low, rich or poor, mean or elevated. It has as much delight in conceiving in Iago as in Imogen. What shocks the virtuous philosopher delights the chameleon poet. It does no harm from its relish of the dark side of things any more than from its taste for the bright one, because they both end in speculation. A poet is the most unpoetical of anything in existence, because he has no identity. He is continually in, for, and filling some other body, the sun, the moon, the sea, and women and men who are creatures of impulse are poetical and have about them an unchangeable attribute. The poet has none, no identity. He is certainly the most unpoetical of all God's creatures. If then he has no self, and if I am a poet, where is the wonder that I should say I would write no more? Might I not at that very instant have been cogitating on the characters of Saturn and Alps? It is a wretched thing to confess, but it is a very fact that not one word I ever utter can be taken for granted as an opinion growing out of my identical nature. How can I, when I have no nature?
When I am in a room of people, if I am ever free from speculating on creations of my own brain, then not myself goes home to myself. But the identity of everyone in the room begins so to press upon me that I am in a very little time annihilated. Not only among men, it would not it would be the same in a nursery of children. I know not whether I make myself wholly understood. I hope enough so to let you see that no despondence is to be placed on what I said that day. In the second place, I will speak of my views and of the life I purpose to myself. I am ambitious of doing the world some good. If I should be spared, that may be the work of maturer years. In the interval, I will essay to reach as high a summit in poetry as the nerve bestowed upon me will suffer. The faint conceptions I have of poems to come brings the blood frequently into my forehead. All I hope is that I may not lose all interest in human affairs, that the solitary indifference I feel for applause, even from the finest spirits, will not blunt any acuteness of vision I may have. I do not think it will. I feel assured I should write from the mere yearning and fondness I have for the beautiful, even if my night's labors should be burnt every morning and no eye ever shine upon them. But even now I am perhaps not speaking from myself, but from some character in whose soul I now live. I am sure, however, that this next sentence is from myself. I feel your anxiety, good opinion, and friendliness in the highest degree, and am yours most sincerely. The ice library built in the winter of 2017 in Baikalsk, Russia, was a maze of walls constructed of ice blocks. The 420 books in its archive, expressions of the wishes and dreams of people around the world. Scored into the frozen surfaces in January, the words melted in April. Growing up in a family with limited means, the Chinese artist Song Dong was encouraged by his father to practice his calligraphy by dipping his brush into water and writing on a stone so as not to use up ink and paper. Years later, as an adult, he resumed the practice as a more routine exercise having to do with the evanescence of words, and his writing surfaces have included stone tablets, streets, and sidewalks. In 2005, he came to Times Square and painted on the concrete pavement a text that evaporated almost instantly in the heat. When I look at the photographs of his work, I see words in the process of disappearing. They are there, and then they are not. There is nothing new about the vanishing word. Throughout history, it has served imagination, practicality, and sometimes dire need. The Roman poet Ovid urged lovers to write their letters in milk. Recipients could then retrieve the messages with powdered charcoal. During the Revolutionary War, George Washington wrote covert messages in tannic acid extracted from gall nuts. 
Linus Pauling tried to make invisible ink from bacteria. Among the 930,000 recently declassified CIA documents from 1969 were assorted homespun formulas for invisible ink, many of them surprisingly lyrical. Take a weak solution of starch, tinged with a little tincture of iodine. This bluish writing will soon fade away, reads one suggestion. Elsewhere, letters written in a solution of cobalt chloride can become visible simply from the heat of the human body. Upon cooling, the writing will vanish. And writing made with vegetable oil or fruit juices, such as onion, leek, artichokes, cabbage, lemon, etc., may become visible by being ironed with a hot flat iron. A different form of necessity drives other erasures. Prisoners sometimes use urine. <clears throat> During her exile in a labor camp, the Ukrainian poet Irina Rachuinskaya used the end of a matchstick to write her poems on bars of soap, washing them away later, after she had memorized them. The value of the vanishing word in human communication has only grown in the age of information overload. In an unexpected kind of way, the blank page, the faded word, the deleted sentence, all seem to suggest that fugitive expression has become cogent and timely, taking a greater hold on our imagination. It only makes sense. We may not be prisoners trying to get our messages out, but we are captives of the information age, which has multiplied immeasurably the volume of communication. The perpetual exchange of data, whether through Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Tumblr, or Pinterest, is now part of ordinary life. Where there once was the evening news, there is now the 24-hour news cycle. When I check for winter weather bulletins on my local forecasting website, the storms have all been given names that pop up on the screen, along with banners for animal rescue agencies, ads for orange juice, and money market rates from a local bank. A friend of mine who is an actor tells me that it is no longer enough to see the film. To absorb the full cinematic experience, one must see the director's cut, with a backstory and alternative endings. For all the ingenuity of such emerging technologies, artists and writers may, may argue most persuasively for elusive expression. In 1953, Robert Rauschenberg, a bottle of Jack Daniels in hand, went to visit the painter Willem de Kooning to ask him for a drawing that Rauschenberg might then erase. De Kooning reluctantly offered up a drawing he had made using ink, crayon, pencil, charcoal, and oil paint. Using dozens of rubber erasers, Rauschenberg spent months eradicating the marks. The final work, Erased de Kooning Drawing, has been called everything from a protest against abstract expressionism, vandalism, and defacement 
to patricide and an act of nihilism. But Rauschenberg himself described it as pure poetry. The marks rubbed, scraped, ground down to next to nothing, and in the end only a ghost of the original, suggest that the material process of drawing could be subverted, reversed, and that undoing can be graceful, selective, skillful, and refined. Side Twombly's calligraphic canvases seem to have been scribbled and erased in the manner of chalkboards, quick and improvised disappearances, and instantaneous and fleeting gestures. Bruno Jacob's series of invisible paintings bear only the imprint of light, air, and water, exercises in the indelibility of the unseen. Zhang Huang uses ash, the very epitome of material reduction, collected from the incense burned at Buddhist temples to transcribe sections of the Bible in Braille, a language that is intended to be unseen. Jenny Holzer's redaction paintings blow up declassified war documents into an exploded scale, highlighting prisoner abuse, government secrecy, and ways in which military information is hidden, obscured, and otherwise reshaped for public view. Each of the monochromatic date paintings of Ankawara simply bears its date. The white letters and numbers painted in a sans-serif typeface on a red, blue, or gray ground. The headlines and facts of the day are sealed inside the box created for each painting. Influenced as a child by the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the artist was consumed by the act of marking days, memorializing the passage of time, and the work suggests that human experience can be framed by containment and reserve. Not surprisingly, the artist rarely gives interviews or appeared in photographs. The artist Anne Hamilton's 2004 installation, Corpus at Mass Mocha, featured a ceiling-mounted mechanism that methodically scattered millions of sheets of blank translucent onion skin paper, one at a time across the floor of a large empty room, where they collected in drifts and piles. Later, the machines retrieved them. The cycle repeated itself for days, weeks, months. You can see the paper as empty of words or full of space. For the blank paper, like the open mouth, is the possibility of speaking or writing, the artist wrote of her installation. Perhaps the most powerful images of the unseen face are those found in the paintings of American artist Carrie James Marshall. Riffing on Ralph Ellison's image of the Invisible Man, the face of Marshall's subject vanishes into the ground of black pigment. Though his eyes continue to gleam, his smile continues to glow. He may not be seen, but he can speak and he can see. He is there and not there, and if he happens to be receding into the ground, the shining whites of his eyes confirm that he is fully occupied by seeing.
He may be invisible, but he is equipped with voice and bright vision. Marshall's subject is simultaneously absent and present, his immateriality conjoined with radiant authority. In his 1821 essay, Unliving to Oneself, William Hazlitt wrote of being a silent spectator on the mighty scene of things, rather than an object of notice and attention. He advocated taking an interest in the affairs of men without seeking their notice. And if one takes in the world through the loopholes of retreat, Hazlitt said, one sees enough in the universe to interest him without putting himself forward to try what he can do to fix the eyes of the universe upon him. Vain the attempt. He reads the clouds, he looks at the stars, he watches the return of the seasons, the falling leaves of autumn, the perfumed breath of spring, starts with delight at the note of the thrush in a copse near him, sits by the fire, listens to the moaning of the wind, pours upon a book, or discourses the freezing hours away, or melts down hours to minutes in pleasing thought. All this while he is taken up with other things, forgetting himself. Pay attention to what's around you, he is saying, and immerse yourself in your immediate world. And while you're at it, get over yourself. What would Hazlitt have had to say about biometrics? Would the team of researchers at Deep Face consider hiring him as a consultant? Hazlitt was about as politically and socially engaged as possible, a philosopher, critic, essayist. Yet he advocated not just for contemplation and solitude, but also, in fact, for forgetting himself. Such amnesia probably fell out of vogue when, in 1900, Freud published The Interpretation of Dreams, but its appeal seems to be returning. A European High Court in 2014 demanded search engines grant users the right to be forgotten when their archived information has become outdated, incorrect, and irrelevant. Contemporary identity politics ask for a deep appraisal of what makes us who we are. We all want to be recognized and identified precisely and accurately. We want the images we have of ourselves to be true. We want language to reflect this and ask that the pronouns used in gender identification be the correct ones. But is there a phase of identity politics we have yet to acknowledge? Perhaps even more critical in the end is thinking about identity less. Decide who you are, then let it go. Ancestry tourism is big business, and Ancestry.com and 23andMe.com have offered us precise portraits of our ethnic heritage and genetic stock. Facial recognition systems, retinal scanning, and biometric tools that can read everything from voice and heart rate to hormone levels and brain waves have given us nearly infinite new ways in which to know ourselves. Now, if there were only as many ways to forget ourselves. 
Not long ago, I received an email from my friend Christina. She is in her 60s, a dancer and a choreographer, and for much of her professional life, has been accustomed to moving in rooms with walls lined with mirrors. But now she has moved to a seaside village in southern Spain, where she knows no one, is known by no one. She is not fluent in the language and says, I have no identity, no role to play. And I make so many mistakes, little social errors, mis mispronunciations. And the local people do not see me as though they are saying, you are not in our way. I feel like I am heir. I don't feel unwelcome. They just do not see me. And that is a huge part of why I am here. As though this is a blank canvas, a new painting I can start. And I really do believe that when we have a reason to be seen, that we will be seen. Christina's sense of moving through the world like air is familiar to me. Though immaterial, the invisible woman is surprisingly recognizable, reflecting evolving ideas about women and their place in society. In the work of illusionists and magicians of the 19th century, a woman's ability to navigate the route between the worlds of substance and spirit got high billing. The tricks came with their own gradations, and distinctions were made between women who were simply unseen and those made to vanish, under sheets, blankets, and bed linens of all manner, of course, but also in trunks, boxes, closets, beneath trapdoors. A woman might simply be made to float, her body diminished by a wave of her hand. In the early 20th century, as women became more present in the public sphere, their modes of expulsion, without reason, logic, or consequence, became even more inventive. A woman might be seated on a chair with a blanket tossed over her. When the blanket was pulled away, she was gone, only to reappear in a seat in the audience. In Alfred Hitchcock's 1938 film, The Lady Vanishes, a young woman on a train becomes disturbed by the sudden disappearance of a kindly older woman, governess and music teacher. The latter, a spinster, is introduced the viewer when she writes the letters of her name in the condensation on the glass window pane only to have them evaporate almost instantly. Within minutes, she is gone. At which point, the other passengers, steward and conductor, claim to have never seen her. It is not just that she is absent. She never even existed. Asked to describe her, the young woman can only say she was middle-aged, older, before admitting... I can't remember anymore. Later in the film, the older woman is reduced to a hallucination, a subjective image, a character in a novel subconsciously remembered, and even nothing but lumps of flesh, all before she is revealed as a British spy, the movie's ultimate heroine in the final scene.